Well, good morning, everybody. My, my name is Luke, just in case we missed that before. Um, good cop, bad cop. Bad cop. Where were you on the night of the 25th? Good cop. Try and remember. It's really important. Bad cop. If you don't start talking, I'm going to throw you in a hole. Good cop. You want like a donut or a coffee or anything? <laughs> Bad cop. If you don't cooperate, you're one of them. Good cop. Help me help you. <laughs> now, I mean no disrespect to any actual police officers. But I really wonder if good cop, bad cop still works. I mean, it's, the secret is out. We know about it. Right? TV shows and movies, it's all over the place. And it's a pretty straightforward strategy. As long as you think of the police as your enemy, you are not likely to cooperate with them. So that's what the bad cop is there for, to still be the enemy. And the good cop is there to protect you from the bad cop. Right? He's your buddy. He's your pal. You can trust him. And the hope is that you will forget that they are on the same team, that they're actually, they have the same goal, that they're partners in this. And this is actually one of the things that drives me nuts about the book of Revelation. And everybody knows the mark of the beast. That's like the one thing people know about Revelation, because it makes into lots of horror movies and pop culture references or whatever. The mark of the beast is 666. And if you actually read the book of Revelation, you'll find out there's more than one beast. And the one beast is terrifying and dangerous and will kill you. But the other beast is your buddy. He's your friend. You can trust him. He's just there to save you from the bad beast. And so he'll say things like, look, you just trust me. You don't want to, you don't want to step too far out of line. You don't want to live too differently. Why don't you just, you just bow down to the beast a little bit. He'll leave you alone. I just, that's what I want for you right now. Hey, help me help you. You know, just... Do some of the things we're doing, make a couple of compromises, it's not that big a deal. Hey, the mark of the beast, if you would just put that somewhere on your body, that would be great. And just give up any marks of any other god, any other lord, and we'll leave you alone. You won't get hassled, you won't get messed with, you can do business with us, life will be a lot better. So the mark of the beast isn't just the number, it's the strategy. It's good cop, bad cop. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're starting at verse 12 today. We're continuing in a series called Resistance. We're going through the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. They are delightfully weird and real cryptic, which is going to be fun today. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living where Satan's throne is. Yet you were holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name 
that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The church at Pergamum has had some run-ins with the bad cop. And Antipas is a casualty in that fight. He's probably not the only one. It's just that his story is more memorable. But even though people are dying for the gospel, there are people who refuse to deny the name of Jesus Christ. They've clung to it. They, they will not let go of the name of Jesus. And that is a dangerous thing to do in a place like Pergamum, where Satan lives, where his throne is. In the early church, in the first century, there, were, there was Rome to the west, but there was Pergamum to the east. It's a Manhattan, L.A. kind of situation. They have federal courts. They have customs. You don't have to go to the other part of the country to find the government in power. It's, they have just as much power in Pergamum. The governor in Pergamum had the Ius Glaudi, uh, which is roughly translated the right of the sword, or the full power of the sword. He had a license to kill. He could do whatever he wanted to make sure that Roman authority and power stayed firm. He was completely in charge politically, completely in charge of the police and the military. And he was in charge spiritually, because in Pergamum, there was this remarkable temple to Rome itself, a place where you could go and worship, essentially, the United States of America and its president, the place where you can go and just bow down and worship. And what would happen is people would go and they would have sacrifices, and afterward, you would eat the leftovers. There would be a feast, and people would eat the food sacrificed to Rome, and they would toast the good health of Caesar, who was called Lord of the world and Son of the living God. Not making this up. And the church of Pergamon was just really clear, like, oh, we live where Satan is in charge. Like, there's no, no question about this. In fact, this isn't the only church that people would be encouraged to go to. There were other churches, and if you've ever studied, well, mythology, you know the names of some of these gods, but we learn them as these cute little things of like, oh, look, they had these magical powers. No, like, these, these were gods that people worshipped. They were real religions, and people would go, and your business was intimately tied up with Hera, or Demeter, or Aphrodite, or Athena, and you would go and you would worship these particular gods, because it was a good way to network, and a good way to make contacts, and a good way to show that you're going to make enough money in the coming year, and there were lots of different ways you worship these gods, sometimes temple prostitutes, and you would go and you would have sex with one of them to prove that your body belonged to this god. A weird thing in this world, but very, very normal at the same time. They live in a place where Satan is in charge. There was actually a temple to a god uh, named Asclepius, whose name you might not know, but he was a snake god of healing. Um, and he was intimately connected to the local medical school, which was world-renowned. So if you wanted to go and be a doctor, this was the Johns Hopkins. And to go there, you had to then worship this snake god of healing, because those two were just intimately bound together. We still have that snake god in symbols for the American Medical Association. The two snakes around the staff, that is Asclepius. It was that powerful, and it still is around in this time. That's how popular Asclepius was. The church lives where Satan, the great snake, is in charge. It sounds really cryptic until you start to pay attention to what the world was actually like, where these Christians are trying to be faithful witnesses. And Antipas, Christian legend has, he was um, murdered by being slowly roasted alive. And in the church he became famous as someone faithful. But in the secular, the pagan world, he was also famous as someone who refused, who was stubbornly unwilling to compromise, no matter how much he was pushed or threatened. Stubbornly unwilling to worship this god, Caesar. 
stubbornly unwilling to worship in these other temples. Um, We have sources from kind of the ancient world that aren't written by Christians. And they say things like this. Under Diocletian, the emperor, Christian stonecutters from Rome without scruple carved in the quarries of Pannonia. Not only pillars, capitals, baths, but also victories and cupids, even the sun god in his chariot. But they steadfastly refused to make an image of Asclepius. For this they were put together as, quote, followers of Antipas at Pergamum. I'm not going to carve a snake god that people are going to bow down to. That's just too obvious. Like, I know who it is that we're talking about here, and I know who it is that's threatening my life. And at the end of the day, no matter how hard they push, I will be faithful. And the church was faithful, but Antipas actually is so faithful he gets a new name, my faithful one, my witness, which is a title that's only given to Jesus in the book of Revelation. So the more we live like Jesus, the more we die like Jesus, the more we start to really look like Jesus, the more we take his name onto ourselves, the more we're marked by it. So the church is this remarkable thing. You and I sometimes we wonder if maybe we could make it in a season of persecution, like if we lived somewhere else and you know, they burned all of our Bibles and it was a crime to hide one or a crime to read one, whether we'd still read it, whether if it was dangerous to go to church, if we would actually go to church, if people were being beaten in the streets for following Jesus, if we would actually, you know, follow Jesus. But the church in Pergamum doesn't have to wonder. They did it. They've made it through on the other side. And yet Jesus sounds really frustrated. Like if you read the letter, Jesus is armed and dangerous. And that's strange, because in the other two letters we've read so far, there's no threat. But here, Jesus seems to be threatening the church that's so faithful with a sword, and they've already made it past these threats of other swords. And it's because they're only faithful when someone's trying to kill them. That's the problem. They're faithful when someone's trying to kill them, but they're only faithful when someone's trying to kill them. They're faithful in death, but not in lifestyle. You see, there's a game of good cop bad cop going on, and it seems like they're failing with the indirect attack. The direct attack, they've succeeded, but the, the indirect attacks where Satan lives, they, they seem to be alive and well and wreaking havoc on the church. And in verses 14, 15, and 16, he brings up this weird Old Testament story. And we don't exactly know what's going on in Pergamum, but we do know what that story is, because it comes to us in the book of Numbers, the story of Balaam and Balak. And so this is the way I will tell you the story. The Bible has a slightly different version, but I'm making it fun. So Balak is this evil king. He's this evil king, and he comes to Balaam, who's a witch doctor, and he pays him 50 bucks, because he hates the people of Israel, and he really wants the guy to curse the people of Israel. And so Balaam's okay, and starts doing kind of the voodoo dance to like you know end the people of Israel. And God shows up while Balaam is doing the voodoo dance and says, no. Which is weird. You just know. You're not going to curse my people. Absolutely not. I will protect them and defend them. And Balaam comes back to Balak and he's like, hey man, I'm sorry. I tried. Um, The spiritual world seems to be against this for whatever reason. Uh, And Balak's like, man, don't just give up. Like, I'll give you another 50 bucks. Try again. So Balaam goes back and he tries again and he's doing the voodoo dance and he tries a little bit harder this time. And this time God shows up and says, no. Not only are you not going to curse my people, you're going to bless my people. And so Balaam comes back to Balak and starts talking about Israel and how great they are and how much God loves them and how much they're going to be preserved. And Balak's like, hey man, like you could at least say nothing. Why are you blessing these people? I, I paid you to curse them. And he's like, look, I told you, there's, uh, it's all I can do. Like I, 
I, I have to do what the spiritual world tells me. The, this direct attack thing isn't going to work. Their God is too strong. I can't stop him. And so a little while later, Balaam, who feels bad, right? He's been paid and he hasn't actually done anything, comes back to Balak and he's like, I got a different plan. We, we give up the direct approach and we try the indirect approach. Don't attack them. Let's stop trying to curse them. Here's what you do. Do business with them. Hire them as employees. Make them dependent on you for a paycheck. They're going to end up compromising themselves. They won't be able to live the kind of lifestyle their God wants as long as they're involved and invested with us. Too many of our business transactions involve too many other gods. Don't attack them. Let your people marry them. Encourage them to get together and to fall in love. And these people, when they start getting in relationships with folks who don't really worship the same God, well, they're, they're, they're just going to be torn between, well, how much they love their family and how much they love their God. It's, it's going to create this sort of endless series of gray areas. They're never going to know what's right and what's wrong, what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And at the end of the day, their devotion to their God is going to be horribly compromised. That's the move. Not the direct approach, but the indirect approach. And we don't really know who these Nicolaitans are and what exactly is going on in the story, but apparently there's some teaching out there that is wreaking havoc in the church not because anyone's saying, I'm going to kill you if you keep following Jesus. I'm going to kill you if you don't give up the name of Jesus. But little by little, they seem to be chipping away at who Jesus is and what exactly they believe about Jesus and whether or not they're really willing to follow Jesus day in and day out. They're only faithful when someone's trying to kill them. Uh, years ago, my dad, uh, one day we were talking and he, he said to me, just out of the blue, you need to be careful about having an affair which is just a really weird sentence from anyone. And you're thinking like, did I do something? Like what, have I been doing something that leads you to believe I'm about to have? Like what's been happening in my life? And he says, no, 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 sorry. I probably should have prefaced that a little bit better. That was, that was random. I was just, I've been thinking about it lately. And the truth is, you know, if a girl walks into your office and she's beautiful and she takes off all of her clothes and says, have sex with me right now, you would run screaming from the room. Like there'd just be Kool-Aid man holes in all of the walls. You'd be gone. But it doesn't always happen like that. What, what tends to happen, right, is it's just a girl who's having a hard time and, and you care about her. And she's struggling in her marriage and you listen. And she likes your jokes. And a little time passes and a lot of time passes. And little by little, moment by moment, you realize a door is open to an affair. And when that happens, you're going to know how to walk through it. Don't. Now, that is a scary story. That's a terrifying hypothetical for me. But I'm really grateful for that fear. Because the truth is, and this is Charles Spurgeon, the devil, when he shows up to your house, he doesn't smell like sulfur. He doesn't have the tail. He's not bright red with the goatee saying, let's sin. That's not how that works. He shows up wearing a nice suit. He's clean-shaven. He's got the hat pulled down over the horns. Temptation rarely announces itself as temptation. Sin rarely says, let's go do something evil together. And it's rare that apostasy, heresy, people who start walking away from Jesus, know that that's what they were doing when they started. Little by little, bit by bit, it gets chipped away. It's good cop bad cop. Most of us, I think, actually would be pretty good in a season of persecution. I have friends who are in ministry who are actually rooting for the day 
that it starts to get really bad to follow Jesus in America, which is weird. I know, it's why would you root for that? My friends are in ministry and they're strange people, but they're like, you know, it would be great if the church actually started to be persecuted in America, it might wake us up. If people started getting beaten in the streets, if it started to be a lot more people being dragged before the Supreme Court, if you started getting sued all the time for following Jesus, if churches were shut down, if property was taken away from us, if Bibles were ripped away from us and burned, people might start reading their Bibles. Something about it. People, there's, there's something about persecution that's always been really good for the church. In the earliest church, when they were murdering us and throwing us to lions, it grew. People joined this crazy movement. In the communist church, when people are killing Christians right and left, it grew. People joined this crazy movement. In Iran, which is ruled by all sorts of people, but there is a great and strong presence of Muslim folks who do not like Christians. Not true of all Muslims, but in Iran, very true. That's the fastest growing church in the world. The church thrives in persecution. We do really well when someone's trying to kill us. But in America, it's a very different kind of attack. We're just slowly and steadily, people seem to be chipping away at what it is we actually think about Jesus. I have a friend who moved from the South to a fairly liberal city, and she works with an evangelical organization that tries to reach people for Christ. And so she's sitting in her first staff meeting ever. And one of the leaders, a younger guy, says, you know, one of the really hard things that happened to me this week, um, I'm just not sure I believe in the divinity of Jesus anymore. And my friend was immediately very, like, alarmed. Like, what? This isn't a non-Christian. This is someone who is trying to lead Christians to Jesus. And he's, the divinity of Jesus is up for grabs? She said, it's like that old parable about the frog and the pot of water. And I was like, I don't actually know what that is. I'm not from the South. And she's like, you know, like when you throw a frog in water. And I'm like, no. It's like, well, what happens is you don't put a frog in boiling water because the frog jumps right back out. He senses the danger immediately. What you do is you put a frog in normal water and you just slowly turn up the heat. And eventually he'll die. And I came from a place where this wasn't normal into a place where suddenly the water is boiling. And I'm looking around like, how does no one know what's going on? And she said, the thing is, there's this church in town that a lot of our people go to. And it, it really, it talks a lot about how it wants to love the secular world and, and people who are outside the church. But if you really start to listen, you realize they don't want to love people outside the church. They want to be loved by people outside the church. Very different thing. They want the people outside the church to love the church and to not think of us as bigoted or not think of us as, I don't know, exclusive in any way. And so they water down the gospel piece by piece and little by little until the point that there's somebody sitting in their church going, I don't know if Jesus is really God anymore. And nobody's alarmed. That's... Dangerous, that's terrifying. In the American church, there's a surprising number of people, a surprising number of people who would say, it doesn't really matter how we treat creation. It doesn't really matter how we treat the world. It doesn't matter if we pollute things. It doesn't matter if we foul our air and our water and our soil. It just doesn't matter. This is a useful thing. God made the world. People are starving in the third world. What are you going to do? Eventually, God's going to come, burn this whole place up, and we're just spiritual beings. And I'm looking forward to that day. That's a heresy. It's called Gnosticism. We had a real problem with that in the 200s. This is an old strategy. There are people, a surprising number of people in the church today who would say the God of the Old Testament is the God of rules and of laws. The God of the New Testament is the God of grace. They're completely different gods. I like the God of the New Testament. That's an old heresy. It was written by a guy named Marcion. We got rid of that in the 100s. It's a very old strategy. There's an awful lot of people in the church today who would say, you know, 
The thing is, God has this plan for my life, but I also have a plan for my life. And I like my plan better than God's plan. And it's not that I'm not interested in God's plan. It's just that, you know, I make my own rules. And I'll listen to some of God's rules, but I'll pick and choose the ones that I like. And I'm I'm just going to live my life in this way. That's an old heresy. It's called antinomianism. We've always had a problem with these things. These are old strategies, but they're working their way back into the church little by little and piece by piece. It's good cop and it's bad cop. The Nicolaitans, we don't really know what's going on. But he mentions food sacrifice to idols and fornication, which is an extremely churchy word that I hate that Bibles still use. We just literally don't know what it means. Food sacrifice to idols would be very recognizable to these people. It means that at some level you are involved in local businesses that are involved with local churches to other gods, and you've just compromised all sorts of little things about your faith. Not the big thing, but lots of little things. And there's lots of stuff in the Bible about how that's a really bad idea. Fornication, um, a better translation for that um, would be sexual rebellion, actually. Um, Porneia, living a pornographic life, a life that is outside the boundaries that God would talk about sexually. And some of that would have to do with just the surrounding weird paganism about sex that exists in the Roman world. And these things have apparently become normal in a church that is willing to die for Jesus. Those two things are somehow not mutually exclusive to these people. And Jesus is talking and saying, look, this is the one with the two-edged sword. Right? I, be careful, repent, come back to me. You have managed to cling to my name and give up my name at the same time. And you're living like people who are outside the boundaries of what it means to follow Jesus. There's a real threat in this passage, and a real, I think a fear that's being kind of put out there for us. But it's a good kind of fear. It's not meant to terrify you and make you afraid of God. It's meant to make you afraid of evil and of sin that would creep its way into the church to make you aware of something that is really a strategy of evil where we live. Good cop, bad cop. And he says, I'll make war with you um, with the the sword that comes from my mouth. Um, Hebrews uh, 4 says that the word of God, um, the word of the Lord is a two-edged sword. It it pierces right to the heart of things. It separates soul from spirit and bone from marrow. There's no hiding from it. It judges hearts and minds. It knows you and your intentions and what's going on. And maybe we do live in this moral gray area in our particular time, in our particular place. And maybe we're doing the best we can. Maybe we live in a moral gray area in our particular time and place, and we go, ah, who cares? I'm just not even going to try. God knows the difference between us. And it is really tricky in our time to figure out how exactly to navigate these particular waters. But the reason we follow Jesus isn't that he's threatening us. That's not actually what's going on here. He's repent, therefore. And repent is a word where we turn back. We cling again to the name of Jesus. Repent, and I will give you this gift, he says. In repenting, we conquer. That's how it works. In repenting, we turn back to the name of Jesus, and we conquer this ridiculous strategy of good cop, bad cop that Satan seems to be using in our lives. It's a really old strategy. It goes back to Genesis, where there's this snake. I don't know if you remember. And there are a couple of people who really know who they are, and who God's called them to be, and what they're called to do. And the snake, he doesn't go bite them. He doesn't viciously attack them. He starts asking kind of sneaky questions like, did God really say? Do you really want to do that? Can you really trust God? And little by little, moment by moment, he's successful in stripping these people of an identity that was put on them in the first place. They're made in the image and likeness of God, and they look less and less like him the more that they listen to the snake. We repent, we walk away from that. And we turn back to Jesus. We turn back to this identity that we've been given, this name that's been put on us. We want to be my my witness, my faithful one, like Antipas. Uh, To the one who conquers, it says, I'll give hidden manna and a white stone. It's the very end. 
hidden man on a white stone. One of those is a very religious Old Testament image. The other is a purely secular pagan image. Uh, hidden manna. In the Old Testament, there's this story about the people of Israel and how they're hungry and crying out to God. And he just rains down food from the sky. And that food is called manna. And they took a little bit of it, they put it in a jar, and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant, which you know from Indiana Jones movies. The Ark of the Covenant, and it's in there, and it's this hidden manna, and it's always with them. There's always this sort of sneaky thing that reminds them that God has fed them and led them through the wilderness. There's a real power that comes from this hidden manna, this sense that God is always providing for us. We don't need the food sacrificed to idols. We've got a different kind of food. That Jesus invites us to a table where we get this remarkable, rich, spiritual meal. It's given to us. And there's something about the bread and the cup, that we get to eat something marvelous and magnificent. And again, it's this hidden manna, a table that we're invited to, a different kind of feast. But the white stone is a more complicated thing, because you'd almost have to live in Pergamum to like, get a sense of what it is. Uh, you used a white stone uh, if you were inviting people to a party. It was like a, a ticket to, to a really good feast. You would get a stone with your name on it. you know, oh, I'm invited to this, this banquet meal, this festival. Gladiators who conquered in the games were often given a white stone with their name on it, a sign that they had earned their freedom, that they had conquered. And in Pergamum, most of the buildings were made of this sort of dark granite. So when you walked around, the city was actually kind of a dark place to be. But if you wanted to put your name on a building, if you wanted to put an inscription that people would notice, you chose stone that would stand out, that would be completely different from its surroundings, that everyone would notice, and you would write your name on it in big capital letters. It would be a white stone on the tops of these buildings. We still have these. We find them in archaeological records in Pergamum. There's this uh, BBC special that I really enjoyed. It's weird. Um, it's called Monastery. And it's British people are bad at reality TV. It feels too much like a documentary. Nobody's yelling at each other and throwing drinks in anyone's face. So the basic idea of this was five normal people got invited to live in a monastery. Normal people, not necessarily Christians. And they didn't have to be Christians, but they did have to live the life of the monks. They had to be silent when they were silent. They had to pray when they prayed. They slept when they slept. They ate when they ate. They worked when they worked. They did exactly what the monks did. They lived this completely different kind of lifestyle without necessarily believing in the things that the monks believed. And it made a huge impact on all of the people um, in the documentary. This was produced in 2015. You can watch them on YouTube. Um, but it, in one of the scenes, there's a guy named Tony, and this is toward the end of their time in the monastery. And Tony is a porn producer who's been invited to live in this monastery. And he's meeting and he's talking to one of the monks named Brother Francis. And he says to him, you know, I just, I'm going to go back to my job. Like, I, I can't sit in a church all day and read a Bible. Like, I have to pay my bills. I have to eat. I have a life. I'm going back to my life, but I don't, I don't want to lose this. And I know once I leave, this is going to fade. This is going to go away. And I, I like the life that, that we have here. And there's this long silence. Monks are really good at silence. And Brother Francis says this, I want to give you something that I think will help with what you've just described. Vocation is about discovering who you really are and maybe what you should really be doing. That's what we are trying to do here, discover who we really are. I want to give you this stone, this white stone. We all have the name we grew up in, our family name. But we also have another name. It's called our white stone name. Revelation 2.17 says, Your new name is written on a white stone in heaven. I think our vocation 
is to find out what that name is, to find our white stone name. And after that, there's this, again, emotional silence. And Francis stands up and he puts his hand on Tony's heads and he prays this blessing over him. And the next scene, Tony's outside in the dark trying to figure out who he is and who he's really called to be. See, we've been offered this stone, you and I, this brand new name, this vocation in Jesus Christ. And occasionally we walk away from it, occasionally we leave it behind somewhere and we forget. And the call of this letter is to repent, to turn back. Regardless of the reason you've walked away from the mark of Jesus Christ, from the name that Jesus has put on you, come back, he says. Come back, I will give you a new stone. A new stone with a new name on it. Our vocation is to figure out who we really are, what we are really called to do. This church, we really want to help people figure out what God's purpose is for their lives, who you're called to be. And first and foremost, that means to get to know Jesus. We absolutely believe that. But we believe that Jesus has called each and every one of you to a particular vocation, that you have been chosen and made with particular gifts for a particular season, for this particular time. That God has a name that is only yours. And that only he knows it and only you know it. Cling to that. Maybe today, go out on a walk and find a rock and keep it in your pocket all week long. Keep it in your pocket for the rest of your life. And remember that you have a new name, that Revelation makes this really, really clear, that there is a new name for you in heaven that is held tight in the hands of Jesus Christ, that you are held tightly in the hands of Jesus Christ. And don't let anyone take that away from you, good cop or bad cop. Don't let anyone take that away from you. The song we sang earlier said, My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No one can tell me to go away as long as Jesus knows who I am. As long as Jesus knows who you are, and as long as you know who you are, no one can take that away from you. We have a new name that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. Cling to that this week, my friends.